book of Hebrews. And last time we finished Hebrews 9. And what that talked about was cutting of covenants and how it's done and the fact that everything is ratified by blood. And we went through, especially in verse 17, there's a difference in a literal translation than most of yours. Most of your translations talk about a will as if last will and testament, whereas Young's literal translation, which is basically the 19th century equivalent of Google Translate, instead of the testator or the one who makes a will, it talks about the covenant victim. So what we're talking about in chapter 9 then is the fact that Yeshua is the victim, the one who was killed to ratify the new covenant. The new covenant has been cut but we haven't yet received the things that are promised in that covenant because we're right now in an intermediate time between the covenant being ratified and all of the conditions of the covenant being in effect so that we would be living under it. So that takes us now to chapter 10. And as we read this, I will remind you of my perspective on the Torah, which is... The New Covenant is the Torah as given at Sinai, written on the human heart, as opposed to written on tablets of stone. And let's start in chapter 10. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Stop there a minute. The idea of the law being a shadow of the good things to come, most of your Sunday brethren will say, you don't want to have anything to do with that. You want to go to the new stuff, which is way better. So this is one of the places where they'll go and say, you don't want to have nothing to do with that old law because it's but a shadow of the thing to come. And from my perspective, The idea that the New Covenant is simply the Torah written on a heart of flesh instead of on tablets of stone. The good things to come is the Torah being written where it's supposed to be written. And then we live in harmony with God because the Torah is written on our heart like it was designed to be. That's the good thing that is to come. There isn't any difference and until we start living in the presence of God, if you will, under the New Covenant in the New Jerusalem, we still have to deal with the tablets of stone because that's what we've got. So this is now going to be talking about the things that are to come. And we're going to get into some eschatology. We're going to get into the sacrificial system and so forth. Just letting you know now what my perspective is as we're going through that because it's kind of important. And we talked last time, and this is not the first time this has come up, about the fact that the sacrifice of bulls and goats cannot make perfect those who draw near because they cannot repair the conscience from willful sin. So the idea that those sacrifices are not able to clear your conscience of willful sin, they're not designed to. So if you read the Torah, Sacrifices in Leviticus are not designed for willful sin. They're designed for intentional sin. Plus, there's a whole table of sacrifices that have to do with peace offerings, 
burnt offerings and so forth that have nothing to do with sin whatsoever. So he's talking specifically about sacrifice with respect to sin. And what he's saying, of course, is that the sacrifices as listed in Leviticus are of no help, which Leviticus itself says. So he's not saying anything here that's new. Let's start back in verse 1 now and go to the end of the paragraph. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, notice every year we're talking about Yom Kippur, because remember there's a table of sacrifices in the temple of the tabernacle that goes on every day. So there are morning and afternoon sacrifices, there are burnt offerings, and all sorts of sacrifices continually going on in the tabernacle of the temple. He's talking about the one that's offered every year, which is Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. So in Leviticus 16 is the procedure for Yom Kippur. And the thing that is striking to me, and I did not realize this myself, I actually got this from Rabbi Sachs, I believe. He pointed this out, and it was like, duh. And once he pointed it out, it was really obvious, but until then, I had no idea what was going on here. If you'll notice, there is a procedure here in Leviticus 16 for drawing near and coming into the presence of God. First thing he has to do is make atonement for himself and his family. And he takes off his flashy robes and just wears a white linen robe, goes in, makes a sacrifice for himself and his family, comes back out, kill the scapegoat, he goes back in with the blood of the scapegoat, which is for the people. And I'm not going to read through this whole thing, but the thing that's interesting, you want to come clear down to verse 34 which is the last verse in chapter 16. So you have this whole chapter of very detailed preparations and procedures that the high priest must go through in order to come into the presence of God. And then clear down at the end, in verse 34, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. In other words, coming into the presence of God results in the forgiveness of sins. All of this other herky-jerky that you go through is simply what you need to do to get into the presence of God. But once you're there, oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't emphasize the forgiveness of sins at all. It's simply a technical manual on how to get into the presence of God. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, since you're here, once a year, everything's forgiven, and off you go. And the insight that Rabbi Sachs had, which I thought was just wonderful, is being in the presence of God results in the forgiveness of sins. And what you're trying to do is get into the presence of God. And that requires all this rigmarole with goats and bulls and all that kind of stuff. And it isn't the goats and the bulls and all that kind of stuff that gets forgiveness of sins. It's being in the presence of God. And by the way, this is the only instance where all your sins are forgiven. We have earlier in Leviticus a table of sacrifices that, well, if you make a mistake and you 
eat something that's holy and you shouldn't have, or you take something that's holy and you shouldn't have, or you misappropriate something. They're all technical things with respect to the tabernacle. They're unintentional. And every one of them says, if you unintentionally do X, Y, or Z, or when you realize you have done X, Y, and Z. So it's not the idea that you have gone out with a high hand with the intention of sinning. It's you've made a mistake. And then there's a sacrifice to get that mistake cleared out. There is no sacrifice for willful sin except on Yom Kippur. And the thing that gets you the forgiveness of sins is coming into the presence of God. So now back to Hebrews. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if this were able once and for all to cleanse you of sins, you wouldn't have to do it every year. What we all do, we all sin as we go through life. We just do. And most of us, I hope, don't do it with a high hand, but we sin. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the blood of Yeshua covers all of those sins, and we no longer have to go in with the blood of bulls and goats on Yom Kippur to get those sins forgiven, because Yeshua, once for all, by his blood, cleansed those sins. After the crucifixion, when they did Yom Kippur, the scarlet thread that was on the scapegoat no longer turned white. He was crucified in 30-something A.D. The temple sacrifices and all were stopped in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed the place. So that's almost 40 years of continual Yom Kippur services after the crucifixion. And it is my understanding that the rabbis say that the sacrifice has been accepted, the scarlet thread turns white. That turning white ceased after the crucifixion of Yeshua. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the blood of Yeshua cleanses for willful sin, and the one on Yom Kippur out of Leviticus has to be done year by year because we keep sinning. So we're all the way down to verse 5 in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Consequently, when Messiah came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And that's from Psalm 40. And this is a messianic psalm. And it starts in verse 6, Psalm 40. But the whole psalm talks about someone who is in distress. So what I am seeing is we're talking about the incarnation, the body that you have prepared for me. And the sacrifice there we're talking about is the sacrifice of Yeshua. And as we've said just before, the sacrifice of bulls and goats will not suffice to take away willful sin. So now I'm on to verse 8, back in Hebrews 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua Messiah once for all. So the sacrifices on Yom Kippur in the Torah, I believe, are a consequence of the Torah not being written on your heart. If the Torah is written where it's supposed to be, on a heart of flesh, 
then I will suggest that those sacrifices cease to be necessary, which is basically what he said. So he says, since they're not necessary anymore, we'll do away with them. So we're, I think we're all the way down to verse 11. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So now, instead of talking about Yom Kippur, we're talking about the daily sacrifices. Sacrifices that are offered every day as opposed to the one that's just offered once a year. And they can never take away sin because they're not designed to. So verse 12. But when Messiah had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool or his feet. So notice what it says. For when Messiah had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins. So the writer of Hebrews is not suggesting here that the sacrifice of Yeshua has done away with, for example, peace offerings and thank offerings and burnt offerings, which have nothing to do with sin. We're talking about sacrifice for sin here. And having done that, he is now sitting at the right hand of God, waiting for the time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. So the quote is from Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What have we been talking about perfecting all this time? The conscience. The Torah sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience. So the thing that is perfected now is the conscience, and how is this conscience perfected in the presence of the fact that we still sin? What it is is when you sin, you know that you can go before the throne and you can apply the blood of Messiah to cover that sin, and your sin will be forgiven. In other words, conscience can be used in a couple of ways. Conscience can be the thing that keeps you from doing something. You know, my conscience won't let me do this. Or, having done it, conscience can be the thing that nags you. Oh, how could I have done that? And you've got this churning in yourself because your conscience is bothered by the fact that you've done something. What this says is you can clear your conscience. Confess your sin, take it before the throne, and confess and the blood of Yeshua then assures your forgiveness. So your conscience can be cleared. And notice the tense of the verb. Let's read 14 again. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice it's not those who have been sanctified. I like the future tense, and I will tell you why. I like the process tense. Sanctification is a process. As you live your life, one hopes that you get better and you learn and, and you improve and so forth as you go through. And I see that as the process of sanctification. And so the idea of clearing the conscience of those who are being sanctified doesn't say that immediately, once you've been baptized, you all of a sudden become perfect. We all know that doesn't work. So I like sanctification as being a process as opposed to a an end state, as opposed to salvation, which is binary. You either is or you isn't. Sanctification is a process. 
salvation, once you've decided to come into the kingdom of God, is assured. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And notice this is offering for sin. This is not peace offerings. This is not bird offerings. This is not thank offerings, any of those kinds of things. It's specifically offerings for sin. And I will suggest that it's specifically Yom Kippur. Because I think this is Johnnyology now. This sacrifices, you know, like if you got a goat that's been dedicated and you sell it. And, oh, shoot. It's been dedicated. I'm not my goat anymore, but I sold it. So now I've got to go in and replace it, and I've got to bring an offering for that to clear it's an unintentional sin. My interpretation is those will probably continue because they're a different table of sacrifice entirely from what Yeshua did. The other one is the Spirit bearing witness. Where else do we see that? In Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So I am saying that the Spirit bears witness there that you have an inheritance that you are going to get at some point. He's your guarantee. Your witness, if you will, that you have an inheritance that you're going to, at some point, receive. So, all the way down to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Yeshua, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Bunch of stuff there. Remember I said that one of the things that has been said over and over again is the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse the conscience. What we have here is now we are clean from an evil conscience. Our conscience has been cleaned by the sacrifice of Messiah. The other thing we talked about two or three times ago, remember the place where you have the earthly tabernacle and the description was an error? Well, the insight that we had there is that the tabernacle is in fact a model of the present age. So we are in the outer part of the tabernacle, and that is the present creation. And so you have this separation between the place where God lives in the Holy of Holies and the place where people can come and go in there because you have to change out the showbread and you know trim the wicks and do all that stuff. But only on Yom Kippur can anybody go into the Holy of Holies. And what the writer of Hebrews says is that's a model of the present age where we have a separation between us and God. And the holy place is the world we live in now. The holy of holies is where God lives. And in the new heaven and the new earth, that will be one place. As the earth is reformed and recreated in the new heaven and the new earth, that separation will no longer exist because we will be in the same place that God lives. The separation between the holy place and the holy of holies is this veil. And the holy place 
is a metaphor for the world we're in, and the Holy of Holies is a metaphor for the world God is in. There's a veil between them. And what it's saying here is that veil is the body of Yeshua. And that was torn. And remember, this letter is written to Hebrews. It, it is written to Jews, people who know the Torah and the Tanakh. So let me back up and run through that again now. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Yeshua, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. See what I'm saying? So the curtain is his flesh. So his flesh gets rid of the curtain because the curtain is an artificial separation between the world we live in and the world God lives in. And the tabernacle is simply a model of that separation. And the curtain that is between us and God is Yeshua. And when that curtain is torn, then the way is open. So now on to 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the idea here is you're supposed to be in community. The messianic movement is littered with what I call spiritual lone rangers. They have heard some radio broadcast, read some book or something, and they've just gotten the searing vision that everybody that doesn't do this one thing is wrong and I can't be in fellowship with it. The pronunciation of the name. When does the month start? When does the week start? And all of these things, and, and they get this searing vision that this is the only way it can happen, and I can't find anybody else who thinks like I do. And so I am going to secrete myself into my apartment, my farm, my whatever, and I and my family are going to do this right, and we're not going to have anything to do with the rest of you sinners. And what that leads to is weirdness. That's because there's nobody that can look at them and say, they're full of cornflakes. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Okay? The point is we need each other. Because if we don't, we just go off into the bushes and you wind up doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The day is coming. And so you need to be together. You need to be encouraging each other. You need to be holding each other to standards. You need to be knocking the corners off of each other so that you can be ready when he comes. So finishing verse 25, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And, and I'm assuming that the day he's talking about is the day of the Lord, which is over 2,000 years distant from where he is. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He's saying something specific here. If we go on sinning deliberately, which is sinning with a high hand, this is not your average ordinary stuff that you do going through life that say, oh, and 
repent of. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about sinning with a high hand. I don't care what you say, God. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it. And what he's saying there is if, if that becomes your attitude, then there no longer remains a sacrifice to cover that sin. Now, I am not a Calvinist. For those of you who are, God bless you. Calvinists are very bright people. They care very much. Uh, I'm sure that they are in the kingdom of God, and I'm, but I'm just going to prove it. Calvinism is God makes you an offer you can't refuse. Once he gets you in, you can't get out. So God looks at you and says, Tom, you, come here. And once he does that, you have no choice except to come. And furthermore, you have no choice to leave. Once God decides that you're going to be saved, you're saved. And done deal. And if God doesn't decide that too bad for you, there's nothing you can do about it. Okay? And I don't agree with that. My perspective is you have a choice as to whether or not you will accept God's call. Once you have accepted God's call, it is God's policy, as near as I can tell, to arrange things as best he can so you never want to leave. But if you do, I believe you could. That's the difference between me and a Calvinist. I believe that you have a choice as to whether you come into the kingdom of God, and similarly you have a choice as to whether you leave. God loves you. He wants you in his kingdom. Once you have turned to him, he will do all sorts of things to keep you there. Having said that, if you decide to leave, there is no other sacrifice for sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you give this up, there's nothing else. So verse 26 again. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice, consume the adversaries. So what you're doing, essentially, is by sinning deliberately, you have made yourself an adversary of God. 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. That's a pretty comprehensive list there. We're not talking about just sort of random, ordinary, everyday sins that we all do. This is sinning with a high hand, saying, I don't want to be in the kingdom anymore. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This idea of falling into the hands of, that's not the same as coming into the presence of. When you fall into the hands of someone, it's an adversarial situation where you have finally been brought up on your sins and you have fallen into the hands of the living God. It's not having confidence to go into his presence because the curtain is now no more. Two different concepts. 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunderings of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, 
Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Notice that there is an inheritance that's waiting for you. At the end of the age, when the Torah finally is written where it's supposed to be on your heart, instead of on tablets of stone, you will receive an inheritance. And what the writer here is doing is encouraging people to remain confident and continue doing the works of Torah. Verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The next chapter is the faith chapter. And it really starts here in verse 37. And so I'm going to delay discussion of what I think is going on there until next time, because it will take us into discussion of faith and a bunch of other stuff. And that's too complicated to do in the next five minutes. Let us shine.